Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. À tous de DBO, attention pour les décomptes finales. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. décollage. Welcome to the September edition of Space Boffins, in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and this is a spy satellite special. Cue dramatic music. For well over a decade, the United States has had the capability to clearly record scenes such as these from polar-orbiting photographic satellites. Here, then, is a historical look behind the scenes to show how this extremely complex camera in space evolved and an appreciation of the government industry team that made it work at a level of efficiency and reliability seldom, if ever, equaled in the annals of space technology. Its name, Hexagon. Hexagon was, and probably remains, the most complicated satellite ever built. Designed in the mid-1960s, 20 top-secret US KH-9 Hexagon spy satellites were launched between 1971 and 84. 19 of them operated perfectly. The last one was lost when the launcher blew up shortly after liftoff. The satellites took pictures on film, which was returned to Earth in re-entry capsules. In a moment, we'll hear from, well, a remarkable man, someone who's rarer than a moonwalker. Phil Pressel was the chief designer at Perkin Elmer in Connecticut for the Hexagon optical system, the cameras on the spacecraft. In the interview, you'll hear about how these film cameras worked, what it was like to be involved in a top-secret project. And also, we'll hear from Phil's wife and talk about his traumatic childhood in wartime France. But first, here's David Baker, editor of Spaceflight magazine and former NASA engineer. I asked him about the role of Hexagon. When spy satellites, there were reconnaissance and surveillance systems, and they informed not only in national security, but also many aspects of the US government, which I was quite involved with, taking the analysis about crop production, about all kinds of agriculture in the Soviet Union, so that we got a measured evaluation of the economy of the Soviet Union. It not only provided an opportunity to construct a set of strategic limitation talks that could never have taken place if you did not have verification. 
but it provided an opportunity to see how things were changing across a time base. Were buildings being constructed? Were they falling into decay? I cannot overestimate the degree of importance that Phil's work contributed. It's almost as though this work and Phil himself enabled us to avert World War Three because suddenly we had the information and we knew it was absolutely crucial. 1966, the Hexagon program had reached the formal competition stage, and both the CIA and the Air Force established program offices. The contractor team finally selected consisted of the Perkins Elmer Corporation, which would develop the prime sensor or dual camera payloads. Yeah, my name is Philip Pressel, and I was the engineer responsible for the stereo cameras on the Hexagon spy satellite program. So they wanted a satellite camera capable of taking wide area photography and close-ups of things like Soviet missile bases and count the number of tanks, airplanes that the Soviet Union had. This could not be done with aerial photography because they could easily move all of their tanks or aircraft from one airfield to another. While we, up in space, we could see the whole landmass of the Earth, and we were contracted and asked to map the entire landmass, and we did. So there were two cameras, one aimed forward, one aimed aft. Thus, it was able to measure the height of airplanes, of rockets, missiles on missile bases. It's like almost two telescopes then pointing down at the Earth. It's not just a simple, it's not simple enough to put a camera in space. You've got to be able to look down. And, of course, you're moving all the time and the Earth is moving below. Exactly. So you have a rotating Earth, a rotating satellite, and you have two cameras, the shape of a barrel, which also rotated in opposite directions from each other. And then you had film, and the film traveled extremely fast past the focal plane. To give you an example, at perigee, which is the closest point of the satellite to Earth, the film traveled incredibly fast, namely at 200 inches per second, which is going from one side of a room to another in in one second. It also carried an immense amount of film, namely these cameras each carried 30 miles of film. The film was less than two thousandths of an inch thick. It was about 6.6 inches wide. The 30 miles consisted of both thousands of feet of black and white, thousands of feet of color film alternating. And the resolution of the uh, film was so much better than anything else, and even up to today... When the program was declassified in 2011 by the National Reconnaissance Office and the CIA, they said that the best resolution was uh, between two and three feet. That means you could see a chair two or or three feet wide. In reality, under certain conditions, it could do better, but I, I can't talk anymore about that. Uh, so this is just extraordinary. So you have to load up this satellite. So the satellite's not got to be big enough only to accommodate the cameras. It's got to be able to accommodate all that film. 
And you can't top it up. You, you load it up with the film and, crucially, you've got to get the film back to Earth. Exactly. So how did we get the film back to Earth? Well, the front portion of the satellite contained four re-entry vehicles, similar to the ones that astronauts used to come back from orbit. Namely, they, the, when, the first, uh, we call them bucket, of, was full of film on both sides. The film was wound on the, the second re-entry vehicle, cut. The re-entry vehicle was released, came through the atmosphere, through all that heat, and at approximately 50,000 feet, a huge parachute was deployed. And then a airplane such as the KC-130 flew, and, and there were several of them, to meet it over the middle of the Pacific. The airplane had a trapeze-like device underneath it, caught the parachute, brought it to Hawaii, and the film was immediately unloaded, sent to us on the East Coast, to the CIA and to us here, a very important point, though, is today uh, all the cameras are digital. And the digital cameras, the advantage is that you get the photographs almost immediately. With film, we were up in orbit. The shortest flight was 52 days. The longest was three-quarters of a year. So if you only got the information much later than whatever was going on. The film, though, I have to say... The reason this was probably the best satellite, reconnaissance satellite ever, is because even if you had a zillion pixels, film takes better photographs. However, the the digital people are catching up, and there's less space between pixels to use up. I suppose the other disadvantage of a film system is you've only got as much film as you put on the satellite. So once you've run out of film... That's it. Correct. And that what happens is the satellite, when the film is all used up, is deorbited, is deliberately burned up in the atmosphere. Its ashes fall into the Pacific. And then the next launch is scheduled soon thereafter. We started designing the system in 1965. It was probably the most complicated satellite ever put up in orbit of anything. And the first flight... A launch was in uh, June of 1971, and it lasted 15 years. We had 20 satellites, and 19 of them were extremely successful. And, and the last one, unfortunately, blew up on, on launch, and it wasn't a fault on the satellite. Correct. If you remember the Challenger satellite that blew up, killing, unfortunately, seven astronauts, exactly three months later, the last hexagon satellite, which luckily was unmanned, blew up on the pad about a 1,000 feet above the pad due to some kind of a failure due to the insulation materials between the the fuel tanks and the uh, satellite. The length of the film path from each supply assembly through each camera system and into the first recovery vehicle is almost 100 feet. Each supply assembly provides 150,000 feet of film to each camera at controlled, constant velocities of up to 70 inches per second under specified tension. What strikes me in your your description of the the spacecraft, it's a complex system mechanically. I mean, all this mechanical system has got to operate in space, and when it's coming back down to Earth, you've got a mechanical system to recover it. Yes, that's correct. 
It was an optical system, and since it was with film, you had to transport 30 miles of film on two sides through the camera. We had hundreds of rollers over which the film went by and made a right turn or left turn, etc. And then it came off of the supply reels at a, about a third of the velocity that it went through the uh, focal plane. The reason for that is extremely complicated. There were several devices that we invented to allow film to not only go linearly very fast across the focal plane, but also in a circle in exactly in synchronization with the speed of the film. So you had the image, which rotated, and the film, which traveled in linearly and in circular in, in rotary motion, to, had to be synchronized perfectly. And the heroes of this program, I think, are the electrical servo mechanism engineers who designed closed-loop servo system to synchronize the two, and they did it perfectly. If they had not done it, then the pictures would have been smeared and blurred. And also, this is all happening in microgravity. So you could test it on Earth, and then it goes up into space. Correct. Uh, When you're in orbit, you have a vacuum. You have no gravity and hot and cold. We tested all the major components of the system in thermal vacuum chambers, and we measured their, the position of the optics very accurately before and after vibration, and this is severe vibration. We were subjected on launch to up to 9 Gs uh, average, and we designed everything to much more than that, but the, the good thing is we never had a failure where any critical object, whether it would be in the focal plane or any lens or mirror, ever shifted after vibration. There are tricks on how to do that. What did you know at the same time of what the Soviet capabilities were? I mean, they're good at cameras. They build very good cameras. Did they have similar capabilities? Did they have similar knowledge? All that I was ever told was no. They did not have anything. And, and I, I believe that. They didn't have anything close to what we could do. To, to reinforce that, it turned out that the f- photographs of, from Hexagon kept the peace during the Cold War, namely from 1971 to 86. It kept the peace. Uh, and how can you? I mean, it's difficult to quantify. But how secret was it? I mean, how, how, how you know? Give, can you give us a sense of you yes. know who knew and how, what did you have to do to make sure no one else did? That was that's a really good question. First of all, it was beyond top secret. We were in a building that had no windows. We had special phones. We spoke even to each other. We, the whole building was was classified. Was We all knew what we were working on. Very few people knew the customer, which was the CIA. You had a special number on your bed if, if you knew, so you could talk to somebody about that. But we talked in code, like the supply reels. They were called SUs, supply unit. The platen, which is the focal plane, we called it the PL, etc., the most taboo word, and if you spoke this on the phone to another person within the building, 
or, for example, at Lockheed. Lockheed was the contractor who integrated the film from Kodak, our whole camera and film pad system, and the reentry vehicles. They were all integrated by Lockheed in Sunnyvale, California. If I was on the phone with someone there, and I happened to mention one of those words, they're supposed to hang up on me. And the most secret word, obviously, was film. Film, ah, you're working on a camera. We could never talk to our families, friends. We never spoke about anything. We traveled incognito, meaning when I registered at a hotel, I signed Phil Pressel self, not where I was from or anything. As a matter of fact, the CIA many times told us when you go to Sunnyvale, California, for example, you cannot stay at this chain hotel, I won't mention the name, because their rooms are bugged. So, and, and even our own documents that I wrote or that other people wrote, they were marked top secret at Byman, which was a security system. I had two safes. Each one weighed 1,040 pounds. And when I took something out, I had there was a book a booklet there. I had to sign out for my own document, and of course I had lots and lots of documents. I remember one time in President Carter's presidency in the nineteen late seventies, he was going to be speaking at Cape Canaveral or Cape Kennedy uh, about. By the way, we have spy satellites, and just to inform the public for publicity or something. And we were told the day before. President Carter is going to be talking about this. You are to deny it. You know nothing about it. You, you totally deny it. And then it did happen the next day, and we denied it. And I, I wish we were told about some stocks that were going to go up, but, but it, that's, that was, the security was, was tremendous. So where was this? Where was, where was your secret building? Was it an obviously secret place? Was it surrounded no, by wires? No, it was in Danbury, Connecticut. And we, we had CIA people in the building, and after the program was declassified, then it was expanded with windows for people working on the Hubble. So there's a legacy there, and the common theme in terms of precision when working, going from spy satellites to, to Hubble, so looking down at the Earth or looking out into space. Right. Exactly, yeah. We worked on a telescope that looked down at the Earth. And as a matter of fact, I, I worked on the fine guidance portion of the Hubble, which the fine guidance system was like uh, a star tracker, which very, very accurately aimed the Hubble at some faint stars. So it was very, very accurate. Now, you mentioned your family didn't know anything about it. What about your, your wife? She's, oh. she's actually she's here. Yeah. <laughs> what is, did she know? Well, no, she didn't really know, although... After a while, you know, I couldn't talk about details of my work, but once in a while, there there used to be some articles in the New York Times, for example, about uh, speculation about spy satellites and all of that. So I deliberately opened up the paper to that page, and I just left it on the table so she could read it, and she got it, but we never talked (laughs) in details about that. So, Pat, you never knew about it at all? No, I never knew. He never said a word to me. Except letting paper, you know, opening up articles in the paper, and you kind of point to them and say, "Read that." But that was later on. That was really kind of at the end of the program. So no, he really didn't. And most of the wives didn't. I mean, we we 
we get together with people who worked on the program, and the wives don't know anything. As a matter of fact, Phil has talked to people, to wives of men who have died without telling the wife, and, and, and they um, will come to Phil and they'll say, can you tell me anything now? So, no, the, the guys really have said nothing. That, so, is, ex- that is extraordinary. Yeah. So, uh, Phil, was it a relief when you actually could talk about oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it was. The declassification ceremony was held in Washington, D.C., a huge ceremony, and outside the building they had a tent with the last hexagon. Now, the last hexagon, the real one, blew up. But from the very beginning, we built a development model which exactly simulated the real thing, and it was built up to be a full vehicle. And over the years, it was upgraded, so theoretically, it could have flown. And I got to see it 25 years after the program was declassified. It was a big thrill. And then I could tell you know, people what I did and... Uh, Pat's right, there were, there were a lot of people who did not survive the 25 years and so their families n- never knew. But some of those families did call me and I've, I've met with some of them and told them, this is what your father did and he did a fantastic job and here are the details. I'm just curious, how did you end up working on America's most sophisticated spy satellite? You mean myself? Yeah. I was lucky. <laughs> I worked, uh, I got my master's in mechanical engineering, and then I did become an aerospace engineer, basically. But I, I had two other companies that I worked for and got experience. Then I was hired by Perkin Hummer. The timing was perfect. I was lucky. I got hired, and I was in on the proposal and the first studies, along with about 30 other people. That's it. You were, I mean, you are lucky by all accounts to have even been in america at that point to even be alive to do this i mean just tell us of your your background oh, well my background okay i was born in antwerp belgium well before world war ii when world war ii i was a, still a child uh, my parents took me and my parents kept up to date so they knew it was very dangerous to stay in belgium we could be deported you were so, jewish yes we were jewish so we, we crossed the border into France, and for the next five years, we were on the run from the Nazis, hiding. So we first made our way to Marseille on the southern, on the Mediterranean. My mother found a place in a very bad district. We had one room and a sink. So we stayed there for two years. It was in Vichy, France. That means it was occupied, and the government headed by Pétain, who collaborated with the Germans. So that was a bad thing. My father could not go out on the street because as a healthy man, he would have been arrested on sight, and we couldn't, we couldn't really do much. He couldn't work. My mother earned a living by... She was a seamstress, dressmaker. She got work and carried sacks of coal on our back and then all that. Then we moved to Lyon, where my father was able to get a job. Unfortunately... The bombings by the RAF and the United States uh, airplanes were so bad in that area that all the mayor edict had an edict: all children must leave the this, into the countryside with whoever. And if you don't do that, you don't get ration tickets and you don't eat. So I was an only child. I was evacuated 
to one of my mother's customers who lived in a small village, 12 miles south of Lyon, in a small village. What they didn't know is this village was one of the main headquarters for the French Maquis, which was a French underground. And it was much more dangerous there than if I had stayed with my parents. Because when I was with them, we had bombings almost every night into shelters. And so I lived through a lot of uh, very bad bombings, shootings, killings. I saw two RAF fighter planes shoot down a German fighter plane right overhead. So a very kind Catholic family took a chance with their lives to hide me. And I was with them in 1944. So they saved my life, and eventually I was returned to my mother and father. But there were some terrible things that I saw, and I was really, in today's terms, I, I, I have P- PTSD sy- symptoms. I still have trauma, traumas and dreams about some of the war things, and, it's, and I could have used uh, me- mental help, but I never did. Anyway, then we moved to Paris. My father took me to the Champs-Élysées, and I was on the curb, and they were marching down the middle of the Champs-Élysées was Charles de Gaulle right after war. You know, he took a lot of credit for victory and all that, but, but I got to see him in person. And a year later, after the war, my father, who spoke eight languages fluently, applied for a job as a translator for the United Nations. He was hired, so they paid for our way to New York, and he lived only for six years. He died from the stress of the war because his parents were killed in Auschwitz, and well, many, many of my relatives were killed, but we were safe. My biggest loss is my father. I miss him terribly. It strikes me there's some symmetry to your career in the way, you know, this terrible, traumatic childhood and in the middle of a war... And then you were involved in the spy satellites, which, as you know, you're saying, actually contributed to preventing a, another another war. Do you feel sense of that? Do you feel that, that there is a yes, you know there's sort of peace peace role? There's a, there's a connection there. Yes, I do. I'm very proud to have worked on on these things, and I know that I never wanted to work on an offensive weapon. Uh, bombs or anything offensive. I wanted to work on defensive stuff, and it turned out I worked on intelligence matters, which was great. You know, I was minor contributor to world peace. I'm happy with my career and, and my life now. I still write. I still do some consulting. My motto is use it or lose it, and that mainly applies to your mind. you got to use it when you're older, and I'm older. <laughs> Phil Pressel, a lovely and fascinating man. We're originally going to cut that interview down, but I hope you agreed with me. It was worth a whole episode of Space Boffins. Thanks very much to David Baker and the British Interplanetary Society for hosting the interview. And uh, do join us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for pictures, where we'll share some exciting news about a series of essays we've made for BBC Radio 3, which go out in early October. And even more exciting... 
Next month will be at the Eztec Open Day in the Netherlands. Now, this is ESA's big technical centre. We're planning a live podcast recording in front of an audience. I'm not sure they're an invited audience. They guess just be an audience. If you're going, though, do join us and, uh, and please say hello. Uh, Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Thanks for listening. The panoramic, stereoscopic eyes of Hexagon have indeed provided the eternal vigilance, which is still the price of liberty. For that accomplishment, we must thank the dedicated team of government and contractor people, the scientists, the engineers, the mission controllers, the image analysts, all working together to show once again the technological achievements that a free people can attain in the preservation of freedom. Five, four, three, two, one. Hexagon, Sentinel of Liberty.